So um, looking at chapter four of Philippians, verses two through tonight, and there are, there's so much in this paragraph, or these couple of paragraphs, if you read it, and we could cut it up in all sorts of different ways. But as I was preparing it, I really felt that there's something in this about peace. And that's the kind of unifying theme of these uh, few verses. And Jesus, as we know, is the Prince of Peace. He gives us his peace. He left it with us. That was what he promised. Throughout his life on earth, he was literally the personification of peace on earth. And so if we're to imitate Jesus, then surely our lives should be characterized by peace. And we should demonstrate that. We must be a people of peace. So is there anyone here this afternoon who needs peace? Anyone facing situations that you think, actually, I need to know that God has this, that he is in charge, and that your heart just needs a stilling in his presence? Because that is what's on offer today as we look at Jesus as peace. So um, the way I've, I've cut this passage up or cut this sermon up, I suppose, is into three bits. So we're first of all going to look at, well, we're going to look at three commands that Paul gives in this passage. The first is that there's a command to agree, and that's about contending for peace. The second thing is we're going to look at rejoice, because that's about unlocking peace in our lives. And the third thing is think. Paul commands us to think, and that's about cultivating peace. So we'll keep coming back to that. So um, I'm going to read Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 9, and then we're going to pray. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, think on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Oh, Jesus, we love you. We love you so much. And as we come to your word and we think about these, these important uh, commands and messages which Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, would they stir our hearts to imitate you more closely? Father, we pray that there would be a deposit of peace from the throne room of heaven for each of us this afternoon that we would be a people of peace who pursue you and imitate Jesus in every area of our lives. Amen.
Okay, so firstly then, agree. So this is how um, Paul starts off this little passage. And this is about contending for peace. I don't know about you, but I think that human relationships are complicated. And it's probably because we, as human beings, are complex beings. And so when you take something that's complex and then you rub it up against something else which is complex, you get something which is really complex. And that's what human relationships can be like from time to time. And in verses 2 and 3, Paul addresses these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. We don't know anything about them other than they are urged, each of them, individually, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. By doing that, it's a really unusual way that Paul addresses them. And by doing it, it means that he doesn't lay blame at the door of either of them. He gives no hint as to who is right in this dispute and who is wrong in the dispute. He doesn't even tell us what the issue is. He just says, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. It's a really simple message. Live in harmony, agree in the Lord or have the same mind is another translation. Now, the fact that he names them means that they were significant people in the church. And uh, you remember a couple of months ago when we started our look at the book of Philippians, we went right back into Acts, and two of the three people mentioned there were women. So Lydia, you'll remember, and then the slave girl. And they were at the forefront of the gospel being preached and uh, spreading throughout Philippi. And here we've got two more significant women who are from that church, part of that church in Philippi. They've clearly known Paul for a long, long time. Look what he says in verse 3. They've shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. They've labored with me, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers. But not only that, their eternal destiny is secure. Did you notice that? So their names are in the book of life. And I love that. He's urging them to sort themselves out. And by the way, you're on your way to heaven. You know, you're in, you're there, you're done. But there's stuff to do on earth. There's stuff to sort out. And I think the fact that Paul has actually heard about this dispute means that it was significant. There was something serious rumbling away, going on for a while that hasn't been resolved and has the potential to do damage in the church. Something has got in. Something has caused a rift. Something has brought about disunity. And it's so easy for it to happen. Even with people that we've known for years. A miscommunication. A bad day. A mistake that you made. An incorrect conclusion. A clumsy word. Anything can just get in and the enemy loves to then wiggle it around and blow it out of proportion. Before you know it, you're in disunity. You're not living in harmony. Paul says, agree in the Lord. Live in harmony. I urge you, and I urge you to do that. It's a command. And the fact that Paul's language is so strong should make us sit up and take notice. And but not only that, he doesn't say, you know, just, right, I'm going to lock you in a room. You can come out when it's sorted. Actually, he drafts someone in to help. 
Um, it says, indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women. And it could be that this is a play on words. If you read in the NIV, you'll see the name in there, Sizigus, which means loyal companion. It's almost like he was saying to someone, this could be one interpretation, that harmony, will you come along and help them come to harmony? It's like a play on words, a bit like he does when he writes to Philemon. And he says, Anisimus, which means useful. He is now useful to you. So it could be that he's talking about someone specific, or it could be that it's just a command to the church. Loyal companion, get alongside and help these women work it out. Be a peacemaker. That's basically what he's saying. Because sometimes in disputes, help is needed. Sometimes two people, for all their willingness to want to work it through, just can't and need to sit down with someone else to help them. There's a blessing for peacemakers, isn't there? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And if we are peacemakers, then we imitate Jesus, who, of course, is the ultimate peacemaker, the one who made peace between us and God the Father. But what is clear is that this is a serious issue in the church. It's not a surface thing, like whether they enjoy the same biscuits or tasting clothes or music or something. For Paul, these verses are a working out of what we looked at in chapter 2, where it says, have this attitude in you. Christ was like this. That's the standard he's holding them to. And ultimately, in that passage in uh, Philippians chapter 2, it says that Christ looked not to his own interest, but the interests of us. That's what it means to have the attitude of Christ. That's what it means to have the same mind as Christ. And Paul always, his theology is not theoretical. So the fact that he writes that in chapter 2, it doesn't stop there. It's got to be worked out. And that's the same with so many areas of theology. That if it's not worked out in practice, then in anything if we don't act on it. It's no good as reading Philippians chapter 2, the amazing truths of, of how Christ humbled himself, became obedient to, as a, became a slave obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now he's highly exalted and reigning in all authority and power, and every knee will bow the knee, knee before him. And then off we go and selfishly pursue our own agendas. We can't do that, not if we believe that theology. a contradiction. We must be a people who live out what we believe the Bible says. So let me give you a few examples. If we believe, if we believe that God is the creator, then we must contend for caring for creation. Environmental concerns should be ours and we should steward well what we've been given. If we believe that God is the giver of life, then we should be concerned for the unborn and for those nearing the end of their earthly life. If we believe in the kindness of God, then we should be concerned with, and we should have open arms that welcome the stranger, the foreigner, the refugee, and the asylum seeker. Because that's what the kindness of God looks like in Scripture. If we believe in the righteousness of God, then we should be concerned with issues of justice 
and contend for truth in every area of public and private life. If we believe that God is our Father and that he has designed humanity to exist in family, then we should contend for biblical marriage, sexuality, and family in order to provide a strong basis for for firm communities. If we believe that each person is a valuable child of God, created equal in his sight, then we should contend for racial equality. We should pursue anti-racism. We should call out misogyny and bias and prejudice and unfairness and inequality wherever we see it. It really is time for the church's actions to match the church's theology. And here in these verses, Paul gives us a clear example of that. Have the same attitude, Euodia and Syntyche. Be of the same mind, because that's what Christ did. Laid aside his own agenda in order to pursue others' priorities. And so agreeing in the Lord is about contending for peace amongst his people. Second thing is rejoicing. That's the second command that Paul gives in verse 4. And uh, this section really is about unlocking peace. So agree is about contending for peace. This is about unlocking peace. So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And um, there's real wisdom here from Paul. I love the fact that he starts with rejoicing. So he's just said, you've got to be reconciled to one another. Rejoice. That's his next word. And uh, sort out your differences. And he's mentioned this before. I mean, one of the themes of the letter to the Philippians is this theme of rejoicing. It's mentioned numerous times. But chapter 3 starts with, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Finally. Half a letter later, rejoice in the Lord always. But It's amazing when you think he was in prison, chained between guards, and yet he's telling them to rejoice. So he says, rejoice. Then he says, oh, and by the way, do it in the Lord. And do it always. And just in case you missed it, I'll say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. You can't get away from the emphasis there is on rejoicing right here. Agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And then he says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men in verse 5. Like, whoa, gear change, Paul. Well, maybe. Or maybe he was just brilliant. Instead of disagreement and strife, what should there be? Rejoicing and gentleness. What a contrast between the situation with Euodia and Syntyche. There should be replaced with rejoicing and gentleness. And Paul then, ever practical, describes the type of prayer which needs to accompany this rejoicing. And he uses four words. So he says in verse 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, petition it will say in some of your translations, with thanksgiving make your requests be known to God. He describes a healthy approach to prayer. Prayer, of course, is simply conversation with God. That's what it means. Come aside with me and talk. 
access to the very presence of the Most High through Jesus, by the Spirit. That's what prayer is. And supplication is recognizing what we're lacking and asking God to supply it. That's what petition's about. It's not a wish list. It's recognizing that he can supply everything that we need. More of that next week. Thanksgiving. I love that this came through in worship. Thanksgiving, it says, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Thanksgiving is a disposition which turns everything back to God. You can't be thankful and not think about God. As soon as you're thankful, it's directed towards him. And make your request to know. So we are allowed to ask for stuff. I mean, why wouldn't you? He owns everything. But requests is actually a handing over to God our needs. And in that very act, we acknowledge that he's sovereign. I was really challenged a few weeks ago about my thankfulness levels. And uh, I'd set aside some time to pray about the, the building situation because I think many of us are wishing that it could be on the mornings and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I was just getting a bit lost about how to ask God for, for this and frustrated, really. And he just spoke to me and reminded me that he has always been faithful. He has always been faithful. A year ago, we had to leave Jago House. What happened? We were provided with a conference center for a term. Then what happened? We were provided with this place. He has always provided. And I'd slipped into this disposition of overall frustratedness rather than overall thankfulness. And God brought me up on it. But it's so easy, isn't it? It's not going my way. It's not, why won't you do this, God? Actually, look back at how I've brought you, how faithful I have been, and turn it into thankfulness. Alec Motcher, who's written a, a wonderfully accessible commentary on Philippians, is really helpful on this verse. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your request be name, made known to God. And he says, Prayer takes up the anxiety question, how? How will I come? How will I get through this? How can this happen? How is it going to work out? Just stirs up anxiety. Prayer deals with it. And he says, thanksgiving takes up the worry question of why. Why did that happen? Why couldn't it have worked out differently? Why, why, why? He says, if it matters enough to worry about, it matters enough to pray. The way to be anxious about nothing, which is the command here, is to pray about everything. The way to be anxious about nothing is to pray about everything. And it deals with the anxiety and it deals with the worry. And what then comes, Paul says, is peace. Peace is unlocked. This rejoicing, and in that context of rejoicing, we pray, and out of that flows peace. And my word, what peace it is. 
you read verse 7, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This peace is beyond understanding. That doesn't mean we don't have to think about it. It just means we, it's inexplicable. It happens to us. Paul, Paul here is peaceful while chained up in jail, possibly facing, well, facing trial and possibly the death sentence. And he experiences peace. That is beyond my comprehension, how that could happen. But this peace, it guards your heart, he says. And it guards your mind. The images of soldiers guarding a person, as Paul would have been very aware of as he said these words. Or like a city. Remember, city is this, um, this kind of outpost of Rome. So there would have been soldiers everywhere. And ex-soldiers. But the word is about garrisoning it. Wouldn't you like your heart and your mind to be garrisoned by peace? That's what it's describing here. And he says it's the peace of God. There's no better peace than that. And not only that, fifthly, it brings us to Christ Jesus. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's our location. That's where we need to be for this peace. It's rooted in Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So rejoicing, along with prayer, is a key for unlocking peace. So that's the second point. And the third thing that I wanted to draw attention to is think. So in verses 8 and 9. And this is about cultivating peace. You see, we've seen in verse 7 that peace is available, and it's beyond understanding, and it comes from God. You think, well, maybe I don't have to do anything. Well, actually, it comes and it guards our hearts and minds, as we've seen, as anxiety and worry are dealt with by taking it to Jesus in prayer. And Paul now moves in these final verses that we're looking at today to our responsibility because we've got a place, a part to play in what we allow ourselves to think. There's eight descriptive words which are there. He says, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lov lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent, and whatever is worthy of praise, think on these things. It's amazing. And he picks out here some really common words that he uses, and there's some really interesting words. So the word lovely and the word admirable don't actually appear anywhere else in the New Testament. So for those of you who love to go away and do your word studies, and you thought, here's some eight word studies I could do, well, two of them are going to be very short. And the excellent word, that's not used anywhere else by Paul either. So he picks out some phrases here. He's trying to make a real point as he paints this picture of the things that, that we're to be thinking about. And it begs the question, why would we choose to think about the horrible or the dark or the evil or the deadly or the imperfect or the gross or the scary or the wicked? What attraction is there in that? But by thinking in this way, thinking about things like this, it makes us countercultural. Because we live in a world, we live in a culture which values, promotes, and pursues the sensational. 
and the edgy and the dramatic and the suggestive and the explicit and the shallow and the backwards and the salacious and the fleeting and the trendy. And it loves rumor and hearsay. And in that culture, it's hard to keep our mind focused on things which are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. When we're bombarded with images, with advertising and with messages which are aimed to induce feelings of lust and greed and envy and covetousness, and selfishness, and satisfaction, and comfort, and power, and desire, and influence. It's difficult to notice the creep of that into our hearts, and discipline ourselves to focus on the true, on the noble, on the right, on the pure, on the lovely, on the admirable, on the excellent, and on the praiseworthy. You see, ultimately, if you put garbage in, you get garbage out. And Jesus taught this. So in Luke 6.45, he says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We know it. So what are we putting into our hearts? And Paul gives us this solution. He says, think about, continually dwell upon these things. Now, I'm not saying that we should avoid thinking about anything negative. I mean, I follow the Wales rugby team, so, you know. But how, how will we be able to intercede for the world if we don't follow the news and allow our hearts to be moved by the horrors that we see? How can we, how can we be moved to witness the gospel to tell the truth of what Jesus did if we never, ever contemplate the horrors of the cross? How can we possibly, as a people, be devoted to breaking of bread if we refuse to meditate on Jesus' final hours before his death? Where would our thankfulness for his sacrifice, our appreciation of the depths of his grace and mercy be if we refuse to look on suffering? I don't think we'd even be able to read Lamentations if we weren't prepared to confront the horrors and brutality of suffering poor. So these verses that Paul pens here can't mean that we just lock ourselves away and think about butterflies and kittens. It can't mean that. I think they're lovely. So. There must be a time to deliberately consider the magnitude of sin, the big issues within our society, the injustices that there are. But surely, in considering those, we can only be effective if we frame our thoughts through thinking about whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent, and whatever is praiseworthy. Because that enables us to see the contrast.
we must filter everything through that. Otherwise, the weight of the world is on our shoulders. We become overwhelmed, overloaded, and weary. Our thoughts must be attuned to God's priorities. And it must lead us to prayer. So Isaiah 26 and verse 3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. So what's your first thought when you wake up in the morning? What's the last thing you think about when you go to bed at night? Can I suggest that waking up in the morning and beginning the day by filling our mind with whatever our phone spits out as being important might not be the best way to retain the peace which passes understanding. I find if I wake up and as I'm making my coffee, I scroll through my Twitter feed before getting to my Bible, I arrive to meet with God, angry with politicians, desperate at the state of the world, frustrated with this, that, and other, and distracted by a dancing bear, whatever it is that's on there. And sometimes, sometimes those things will fuel my prayers. Sometimes. But for me, usually it means that this side that I've set aside by God is far more easily hijacked by the enemy than it is for me to set my mind on what God has for me for the day ahead. I need to start my day thinking about whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent, and whatever is praiseworthy, in order to cultivate peace in my life. So just to wrap up then, notice, when you read back through these verses this week, just notice how much of this is located in Jesus. So that he urges those two women to agree in the Lord, he tells us to rejoice in the Lord. He says that the Lord is near, at hand, right there. That the peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that the God of peace, in verse 9, will be with you. This is about the presence of God. Peace, ultimately, is about the presence of God. Because we have his peace, we can be in his presence. And maybe a starting point for adjusting our minds to be thinking about these things is by thinking about how Jesus is all of these things. So Jesus is true. Jesus is noble. Jesus is right. Jesus is pure. Jesus isn't lovely. Jesus is admirable. Jesus is excellent. And Jesus is worthy of praise. So as we focus on him, and as we contend and unlock and cultivate peace, as we agree with one another, as we rejoice in constant prayer, and as we think on him, peace will come. So can I pray for you all that we have a deposit of peace over this summer? Would you like to stand if you want to know his peace? Yeah, Jesus, we come to you as the Prince of Peace. 
And we ask for you by your Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit who grows the fruit of the Spirit in us, one of which is peace. Lord, we pray for exceptional growth this summer for each of us in the fruit of peace. Lord, that it would be something which characterizes us, that you would help us deal with disagreements and niggles as they arise, that we would contend for peace, that we would be a people who rejoice in you always and at all times, that we would take everything to you in prayer, and that peace that passes understanding would wipe away our anxiety and our worry, and we would rest in your peace. And Jesus, would you fill our minds? Fill our minds with things which are of you. And when the world tries to bombard us with things that would distract and drag us down, it would uh, aim to set its priorities in our lives. We say, no, we want to be people who think continually on you. So I pray for each of us here. Would you pour out your peace? Would you place a deposit of peace in each of our hearts? May our lives, may our families, may our homes, may our holidays, may our workplaces be full of your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.